0: 5, 7. Hosea chapter 11, and I want to read verses 1 to 11, and then for a while just speak on these this evening. Hosea chapter 11, let us hear God's Word. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, because I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I... I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go out after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray your blessing upon it, and we pray, Lord, as we look at these lovely, glorious verses together, Lord, that you will help us. And Again, Lord, as we would always want, as we look at Scripture, we would pray, Lord, to see your glory. So open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, Lord Holy Spirit, please come and minister, and Let us see the glory of our holy God. We ask for this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we come this evening to probably the most moving passage in Hosea. If we remember how this whole book is meant to show us something of the heart of the Lord. As he sees his chosen, his beloved covenant people, Israel, reject him. And then replace him with lifeless, useless idols, the, the, the tension between him dearly loving them and yet in his justice, in his holiness, this inability to simply ignore their repeated pattern of unfaithfulness. Hosea 11 famously shows the intensity of those feelings of our God, and therefore, what it says to us will be quite poignant. So much so that an Old Testament theologian describes this passage in this way, an utterance whose daring is unparalleled in the whole of prophecy. Think about that. Think of Isaiah 53. Think of the end of Zephaniah chapter 3. An utterance whose daring is unparalleled in the whole of prophecy. The particular verses are, of course, verses 8 and 9. But before we get to them, obviously, there are verses 1 to 7, which again build the path. They they lay the path for us to appreciate God's heart. Hopefully, you remember what I said last time of how chapters 9, 10, and 11 contain four scenes where we see the Lord looking back in time and reflecting on what Israel used to be like, back in the good old days, as it were. Chapter nine, verse 10, when Israel was like grapes in the wilderness or f- the first fruit on a fig tree. Chapter 10, verse one, when Israel was a luxuriant wine vine sorry, yielding its fruit. Chapter 10, verse 11, when Israel was a tree and calf that loved to thrash. Here we come to the fourth, here in chapter 11. And God is again in a sense reminiscing on when he and Israel first entered into covenant with each other when Israel was a child. When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. So now the metaphor has changed. Have you noticed the, the picture has changed from the Lord being as a husband to Israel with Spent quite a while considering Hosea and Gomer, that, that relationship of a, of a husband and wife, an unfaithful wife. Here the picture now changes from a husband to him as a father and Israel as his son. That, that kind of relationship was first realized when, back when God told Moses to go back to Egypt and there he had to confront Pharaoh. That Pharaoh should let his people go and set them free from their slavery. Exodus 4 verse 22. You, Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If, If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We've been following this with the kids, haven't we? Was it last year? I can't remember now. The Exodus. We've seen, haven't we, that fear Pharaoh said no, repeatedly said no. He refused to let God's son go until, of course, the the last the, the tenth plague, when indeed Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed. This is the kind of relationship we have here in Hosea eleven. Of a tender-hearted father with his beloved Son. And yet before we look at Israel as God's Son, we we need to remember that this, this points us forward to the true Israel, to the true Son of God, to Jesus Christ. Where Israel as the Son of God repeatedly failed as a son, the Lord Jesus repeatedly and consistently pleased the Father. So much so that when we trust in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in his death and in his resurrection, through Jesus, we become sons of God. We become his very children. Romans 8 verse 29 tells us, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, first of all, let's look at this tender heart of our loving Father. God had called to Israel to come out of Egypt, to come out of slavery and to be his son, to be his people. And that's, that's how the Ten Commandments begin. The Ten Commandments are the basis of the Old Covenant. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. It's because of who God is that was the basis of how they then should live. I'm your husband. I'm your father. Therefore, obey me. This was their identity, the people of God, the Son of God. But the people of God, Israel, kept forgetting who they were. They kept forgetting their origin. They kept forgetting the covenant. That's why it's so helpful for us as a church to regularly remember the Lord's death as we did this morning, to come together again and remind ourselves of the basis of our faith. We're not religious people. I hope we're not. We are in relationship with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's table reminds us of that. Israel had become religious idolatrously religious. We read, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You have to ask the question, why would they do that? Why would they respond like that when God had called to them in love? When you read how God is described in those beautiful verses of verses 3 and 4, how the one who had called to them, the one who had brought them out of slavery, look at how he had shown his love for them as their father. I mean, any of us who have been a father to a toddler or maybe watched others with their toddler teaching their two-year-old how to walk, watching the father proudly holding his child's arms or hands and encouraging them tenderly, walk, speaking to them with words of love and encouragement, encouraging them with sounds of joy as they see their dear child, their son, stumble forward. And of course, if they collapse and maybe they they scuff their knee and they cry, what does Father do? But he lifts them up in his arms and he he calms them. He kisses their sore knee. He heals them as described here, verse 3. Verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I, I bent down to them and fed them. None of that describes what we would call an abusive father. Someone without any care, any concern for his own child. But all of this repeatedly proves how deep the father's love was for his Beloved son, Israel. So why why did they go away from such a caring father? Why did they reject such love? I think they basically didn't believe him. We think again, as we did this morning, of Adam and Eve. Think of how they could do as Israel did. Only they did it in a state of perfection. Perfection. Adam and Eve didn't believe what God had said. If you eat from that tree, you will die. Instead, they believed the lie. They believed that God didn't love them as much as he said he did or he showed he did. Since, well, there's that other tree. He's not letting us have that tree. He mustn't love us then. They believed the lie, but... But God did love them. He, he cared for them. He provided for them. He gave them to each other. Yet they still chose to selfishly disbelieve and disobey and break the tender heart of their Creator God, their Father. Israel knew God, and yet not nearly as much as they thought they did. They, they had a wrong view of who God is. They, they viewed God as restrictive because of the law, rather than seeing him as protective. That's why I'm giving you the law. They viewed him as narcissistic, always wanting their exclusive loyalty, rather than seeing him as, as, as a faithful father, a faithful God. They viewed him as remote, the unseen God, hence their golden calf idol rather than seeing him as relational and loving, one who could be known. Adam and Eve and Israel didn't have a right view of the heart of God, and so they didn't believe him. They distrusted him, and so they rebelled against him. In his book, Communion with God, the English Puritan John Owen describes how we can have a wrong view of God as a father, which then affects our response to how he is as a God of love. Owen writes this, So long as the father is seen as harsh, judging and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes near him. So in Scripture we read of sinners fleeing and hiding from him. But when God, who is the Father, is seen as a Father filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. We can begin to see God as that Father filled with love when we spend time with Him. How do we do that? Well. Sorry to bore you with this, but it's simply reading the Bible and praying. That's how we do it. That's how we get to know this lover of my soul. We spend time with him in his word and and pray to him in response to his word. We, We often think about the cross of Jesus and where the love of God is focused the greatest. Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think of that often. 1 John 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how we know the heart, the tender heart of God, the Father. Secondly, though, we need to see the tender heart of God broken. Verses 5 to 7, think of how Hebrews reminds us of the purpose, the reason for why God would ever discipline his people. Hebrews 12, verse 6, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God had taught his son Israel to walk, but where does that son walk? Well, into the proverbial road of traffic we heard this morning. He, he walks out into recklessness, into craziness, into danger. That's where the son walks. Verse 5, they've refused to return to me. We've seen that, haven't we, in the Isles of Asda or Morrisons? Get back here! And the child refuses to come back. I remember being in Sainsbury's one morning, and the mother had to put the child in the, I was going to say the security cage, but it's not really, you know, like in the trolley, you know, to plunk them in. And the screams of that child... And I met the mother in an aisle, and I just because we all we've all been through it, haven't we? And I just smiled at her, and she went, "Mm, "Yeah, I know." (laughs) The screams of this child wanting to get away, wanting to run her own course, this child. And yet, this father calls his children back to him. Verse seven: My people are bent on turning away from me. But the father calls to his son to come back to where he'll be safe, where he'll be watched over. But Israel stubbornly refuses to come back. And so father must discipline his son. Father must teach Israel to learn obedience and the benefits of that, the blessings of obeying their loving heavenly father. And you can see what that punishment will look like. Verses five and six, firstly, in their exile, Egypt's only mentioned to remind them of their past slavery, but this time they'll be slaves in Assyria. Secondly, their suffering will be from under the sword. You see how Hosea uses words to describe their suffering? Rage, consume, devour, colors of God's wrath. Thirdly, their punishment will be in their abandonment by God, though they call out, to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. God's ears will be deaf to their cries for help. Us, like Isaiah describes, Isaiah 59 verse 2. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. This triple serving of punishment, it's this that seems to provoke God to say, what comes next in our third section tonight? This, this tender heart of the Father poured out, verses 8 and 9. Arguably, these two verses are really the central part of the whole book. Everything before and after swinging on this hinge. If you think of what's just come before here, those three servings of punishment, of exile, of suffering from the sword, of God not responding to their cries for help. It's here that it, as it were, dawns on this loving Father. It it dawns on this Father with such a tender heart that he is overcome with compassion for them. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It's so similar to that emotion we saw back in chapter 6, verse 4, that sense of exasperation there. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? And here in chapter 11, it's as if the father who has watched his son walk away from him the father who can see what looms ahead for his son as he finally, uh, blindly follows his own sinful path. Uh, The father is running to his son and swooping to pick him up again lest he fall into danger. Adma and Zeboam were two of the cities destroyed when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You read of that in Genesis 19 or... Deuteronomy 29 verse 23, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and wrath. It's as though the father here, he can't bear to think of his dear son Israel experiencing anything similar to what those two cities faced. And so as he thinks of that, we read, his heart recoils within him. That word that the ESV uses, recoils, it's the same Hebrew word as overthrow in Deuteronomy 29. You'll see it on the screen behind me. In other words, as God thinks of what is going to happen or what should happen to His precious Son because of their sinfulness, it's His heart that is now overthrown. This is the turmoil now going on, the turmoil not on them but within Himself. His heart is in turmoil. His heart is overthrown. Because, verse 5, if Israel wouldn't return, if they will not repent, then in verse 9, it'll be God, the Father, who will instead do the repenting. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Now, what reason does he give us for this? Does he say, I'm not going to do this because I love them so much? Look at what he says. For the reason for repenting, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. It is because of God's holiness that he will not come in wrath on Israel. Surely we would have expected his wrath because of his holiness, wouldn't we? We would expect a, a holy God to, to hate unholiness, to, to hate sin and to react strongly to sin. That, that's what we would do in the name of holiness. But God says, in my holiness, which is different to a human response, I, I, I won't do that. You see, God is choosing to love when it hurts. You and I, we want to be like God. We want to be holy, don't we? One of the ways we reflect the holiness of God is we love those we would naturally hate. Those we, who have rubbed us up the wrong way those who have said cruel things to us, those who have sinned against us, those who have offended us. Holiness is to love them still. And that's what God is doing here. To love them because I love them. So there is a question here, friends. How can a holy God who says in Numbers 23 19, He's not like us, He doesn't change His mind, but what He says He'll do, He does? How can He not then do what He says He'll do and pour out His wrath on His Son for all His disobedience? How is this? Recoil. How is this change resolved? At the cross. It's at the cross where, verse 9, the Father executes his burning anger. It's at the cross where the Father, verse 9, comes in wrath. It's at the cross, verse 9, where someone is destroyed for sin only not for their sin, but for our sin. There on the cross, God's obedient Son, His eternal, His beloved Son, the Son with whom the Father said He was well pleased with, but there on the cross, the Son of God bore all our sin in our place. There on the cross, Christ, the Son of God, He suffered the Father's wrath for our sake for our freedom from our slavery to sin. But rather than we face the enormity of God's justice, the Father instead sent his Son for him to face it in our place. And I think, you know, for the first time I've seen this linked in Romans chapter 3. You know, well, how, how can God do this? How can God allow his people of old to do this? Well, in Romans chapter 3, we read, I'm reading for the new living for the sake of time, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. Listen here. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back Hosea 11. This shows that God was being fair or just, as the ESV says, when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Friends, these verses show us the glory of our God and Father. This is the righteousness of our God. This is the wisdom of our God. This is the tender-heartedness of our loving Heavenly Father who would see his prodigal son coming home again and would run to him and embrace him and kiss him without bitterness, without resentment, but only full of delight and joy. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Finally, fourthly, close just in two minutes, we see the tender heart of our father in his call to his people who are still far off from him. Verses 10 and 11. Do you see again how the metaphor changes? The father roars like a lion. Now I know fathers have sometimes been accused of that, roaring to their children like a lion. But here God is presented as a, with a lion-like roar to his children. And his children hear him. And what do they do? Before, you see, when he called to them, they went further away. But now, he says, when he roars to them, they will come to him. They will come home to him, and they will find rest with him. It's like a new exodus. It's like a new exodus. When God roars to his people, he will call them from Egypt, from Assyria. He will roar to the east. He will roar to the west for his children to come home. And listen, they will come. We're told they'll come trembling and they'll come humbly. His children will come and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Now, the first fulfillment of that is obviously the return from the exile. But friends, I would say in these days, the call to come home is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we preach, as we teach, as we share the message of God's Son on the cross, God the Father is roaring to His people to come home, roaring to His children to come home. And the great promise that we have, that we're reminded of as those through whom He roars, is that through us, they will hear. And They will come. They will come home and not one of his children will be lost. Let's pray together. God of heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this picture of your heart tonight. We thank you for this insight you've given us from these few verses, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us in these coming days to reflect on these things, to pray over them. As we, as we pray to you, Lord, bring them back to our memory to work them into our prayers, Lord, how you are such a loving Father to us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Help us then, we pray. And may this stir in us, Lord, love for you. better obedience to you and a right understanding of who you are so that when we we hear you call to us in Scripture, we would not run from you but we would recognize that that call to obey comes from the heart of a loving Father who only wants the best for us. Help us to remember that, Lord, and again by your grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit within us to to yield our will to yours. So help us, Lord, please. And thank you, Lord, for your patience and grace each day. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.